Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, Greetings this Lord's Day, our final Sunday of Advent in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Greetings. God has been so very good to us, has He not? Amen. Scripture in John says, Beloved, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what it shall be, but when he shall appear, then we shall see him as he is. It's an amazing thing to me that God can love us. It should shock you, really, if you think about it. He's a holy God, and if you remember how Isaiah felt when the Shekinah glory of God came to him, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and an unclean heart. And God said, I can take care of that. And the Bible tells us that God took a coal from the altar and touched to his lips and cleansed him. I don't understand how it all can be, but I am thankful today that God loves us. I was telling the men up here uh, what has just been going over and over in my mind this week as uh, I've been preparing for this message, my, my sermon today about David is called David, Beloved by God. And when I first entitled my message, it was going to go with the other messages I've done. David, uh, hope uh, of Israel. Then it was David, faith for Israel. Then it was David, joy in Israel. And so I was going to do David, love for God. But I was telling Luke and the guys up here that as my week went on, it, I realized something beautiful that I want to be the theme of our service today is that it's not about our love for Him. It's about His love for us. Amen? Amen. And part of the amazing thing, Brother Steve, about that love God has for us the Bible said that who God chose that he foreknew. And Steve, God chose you knowing all the things that you are yet to do. All of them. And he still loves you. 
For me, that's an amazing, an amazing, amazing thing. David has come to, in our call to worship, a horrible place in his life, in a wonderful place, kind of like in the Grinch who stole Christmas, you know? He said it's a, he, the Grinch had a wonderful, terrible idea, right? Only this works just the other way around. David came to a wonderful, terrible realization. And that was that he was a sinner. And that he, without God and without the help of God, could never, ever have hope. Psalm 51 begins like this, and this is part of the inspired word. This is not my description. It says, Psalm 51, starting verse 1. It says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. It's kind of hard to imagine that that's part of a song that the children of Israel sang. But it is. David said, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, that I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, and renew in me. A right spirit. Cast me not away from thy presence. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with the free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways. And sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me God from blood guiltiness O God. Thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. And with the burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Let us pray. Lord, help us today as we gather to remember that your coming was all about love. It was love for us that filled the heart of the Savior as he sweat great drops of blood 
knowing the shame and the pain and the difficulty, the joy of loving us was set before Him. The joy of conquering this ugly thing that we see every day, death and sin. That's what the coming of the Christ child was all about. That's why the angels say, Glory to God in the highest and on peace and, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Lord, we pray today that as we come into your presence, Lord, that you would hear us, that you would forgive us, that you would fill us, that you would change us, that when we leave this place, we'll be different than when we came. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Amen. Our call to worship was from Psalm 51. So is our text. And so will be my conclusion. We really need to hear this, church. We really, really do. I know I've been needing to hear it. And as I've been learning about this and hearing this, God has spoken to me. So I pray he speaks to you. Psalm 51, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of all thy righteousness. Let us pray. Lord God, I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me today this message that you have been speaking to my heart for many days. Lord, that it would change how we treat others, how we think of others, and how we think of ourselves. And Lord, I pray, Lord God, that you would just supernaturally, Lord, speak words that I'm not even speaking into the hearts of those who are listening so that they might know you as you are. Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The words I just read from Psalm 51 are some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. This prayer should be known by heart by every single person who knows God. For it is the heartbeat of a man 
who was beloved by God. A man who God himself tells us was a man after God's own heart. God loved him, and in return, David loved God. Preaching in the synagogue in Antioch, the apostle Paul said this of David. It says, God raised up David to be king over Israel, to whom he gave the testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. You can read that in Acts 13, 22. Before David was chosen, he said these words to Samuel. And after his life and many years after, these words were being said of David that he was a man after God's own heart and he would fulfill the will of God. Yet, in the middle of it being said before him and it being said in the book of Acts, what transpires right here that we're going to talk about today is something so ugly and so horrible and so unthinkable that if it happened in our midst today, I doubt we could even look upon it without a snarl of disgust. The depth of understanding that we can have from this outpouring of confession and repentance here in Psalm 51 cannot be understood apart from the heinous circumstances surrounding it. Today we're going to talk about God's love for David and David's love for God in the context of one of the worst sins recorded in the pages of Scripture. Oftentimes we find the greatest clarity in disparity not only in literature but in the depths and the heights of our lives the clear crisp air uh, the highest heights and the full glory of the sun seem even more transcendent after we have languished at the bottom of a damp and dreary dungeon of our own depravity this is what we will see here in the story of the wayward david the noble uriah and his lovely little lamb of a wife bathsheba i frame it this way because the frame fits. We often call this the story of David and Bathsheba, but this was more a story about David and his dark and sinful heart than about this woman, and really even more about God than either of them. God knew David would do this when he chose him to be king over Israel, and he promised that his throne would be established forever. God knew it all, and he still picked David. David will live out the truth recorded by John in his first epistle, which we heard already from our New Testament reading. A truth, I pray, that God infuses into us in a way today that has never been before. And that word and that truth is herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. 1 John 4.10 Herein is love. Many people will give you a definition. They will try to describe it. And the Bible gives it right here. Paul tells us what love will do. But John tells us what love is. Herein is love. Not that we love God. We are incapable of love. Love is not about what human beings do. It is about what God has done. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. People of God, the story of the Bible is a grand story of God's love for us. It is not a story of the great love that we have had for God, but the story of the great love wherewith He loved us. Today from the life of David, we will behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called His sons. 
and his daughters. Today we will be reminded that although we long for righteousness, we lack the ability to perform it and to achieve it. But God lacks nothing and he is not depressed by how bad you are. Some of you are so, some of you carry around the baggage of how bad you are and how bad you've been as if somehow this alters you before God, but it does not. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how dirty you've been, how filthy you've been, how many sins that you have willingly committed that we don't know about and that no one knows about you. You think that somehow if they were known, it would change something that God feels about you. You're wrong. God cannot be depressed by the most dark thing that you can ever do or think. And he's not impressed by your good behavior either. This sad and heart-revealing story, the story that points us to the goodness of God and His loving kindness is told to us in 1 Samuel 11 and 12. Honestly, I wish I could preach about this for five weeks because the depths of the truth of this are so powerful that I think it could rock our worlds if we could just grasp it. As we start in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11, it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab. It was time for kings to go to war. Does this, this sound, something's wrong here? It was time for kings to go to war and so David stayed home. He sent Joab, his servant, with him and all of Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah and David tarried. At Jerusalem. As I said, note how the verse sets out that it was time for kings to go to battle, but David does not go. He sends Joab. He should have gone, but David tarried at Jerusalem. You see, sin overcomes us most when we are where we should not be and when we're not doing what God has called us to do. We love pleasure. And if we're not very careful, pleasure will lead us instead of it following us. Pleasure should come as a fruit from our righteous works it should never be pursued for itself if we follow pleasure we will be enslaved by it it will lead us to sin and sin will take us to death and death is where David is headed on this day where he has stayed in Jerusalem instead of going to battle it came to pass in the evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself the woman was very beautiful to look upon and David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Bathsheba may have been the seventh daughter as her name implies or the daughter of an oath. Her name has two different meanings. In fact, she was named one name at her birth, but when she got to a certain age, her name was changed. She was, her name was changed because of something remarkable about her character and about uh, the kind of woman she had already demonstrated she could be by the time she had reached adolescence. Her father was one of David's valiant generals. She was from an incredible and noteworthy family. Her grandfather, Ohithophel, was David's top chief counselor ahead of all others. His counselors were so wise, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 16, that 
it was as if a man, quote, had inquired at the oracle of God. So was the counsel of Ohithophel, whom David and Absalom consulted. Her brother also, Bathsheba had a brother, and her brother was also among David's most loyal followers. Many people don't know these things about Bathsheba, but Bathsheba was from an incredible family. She married a brave and loyal and even a praiseworthy husband named Uriah. It calls him a Hittite, but he was at the very least a second generation Jew. He was not a Hittite in the sense of the Hittites we want to destroy, but he was one that had been converted to Judaism at least two generations. His family had been serving God. Uriah is listed among the top 37 most valiant men in all of Israel during the life of David. We have no indication that she was a bad girl or an adulterous woman, it seems. The opposite was so. In the middle of the night when she could have expected some privacy on her rooftop perhaps, instead someone was watching her. He should have looked away, but he did not. He did not sin by happening upon Bathsheba that night. He sinned when he tarried on the rooftop looking was not his to look at. Martin Luther was asked how he struggled if, if he were like any other man and struggled with the temptation and lust for women. And he said, I cannot control whether birds fly over my head, but I can control whether I allow them to build a nest in my hair. And lust is not seeing something lovely. It is dwelling and tarrying on this. And I know we don't talk about this a lot in our church, but we're going to talk about it now because it's right here in our story. You see, David sinned when he determined to find out who she was and where she lived and what her name was. He sinned when he brought people up on his rooftop and pointed out, I saw her over there. She was on that roof over there. She lives in that house. Can you go over and find out who lives there and what her name is? I want to know. There were many sins on the way to this great sin he was about to commit. It took a lot to arrange it. Most sin does not happen upon us. God gives us plenty of means to escape our temptations. In fact, the Bible tells us that there is no sin that can take us, that is not common to every man. But God, with the temptation, always provides a way of escape. David had way after way after way put before him. I have had the same experience. Sin has come and a temptation has come and I will see roadblock after roadblock after roadblock and you know what I do? I jump over it and I walk around it and I step over it and I get a ladder and climb over it. That's what I do. You know why I do that? Because I'm a sinner. But God is kind to me and most of the time He puts enough roadblocks in my way, Brother Andy, that I end up doing okay. But if it weren't for God, I can tell you right now, I'd be a wretched man. God loves me and he loves me enough to let me live a good and clean and righteous life because if I didn't I couldn't stand here before you and preach his word I just couldn't do it his sin happened after a lot of work the seemingly smaller sins that he committed on the way his growing lust would bring forth sin he would have what he wanted. David sent messengers and he took her, it says in verse 4. She came in unto him and he lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned to her house. Bathsheba had just gone through her time 
of womanhood and she had uh, her body had made uh, a, a, an egg that could be fertilized and turned into a human being. This is what the Bible means that she is being purified from her uncleanness. She was washing and the Bible gives very specific orders on the cleanliness uh, and the purification that needs to be done. This is included in the scripture for a couple of reasons. Uh, the commentators tell us that it was to basically explain that we know she wasn't pregnant before this. It wasn't though she was a loose woman. She was a woman who was menstruating, and so as a result, she certainly was not pregnant at that time. Not only does it show us this, but it also showed that she obeyed the law and that she was doing what God required in His law. But it also showed us that it was a perfect time for something to happen that does happen to her. God had warned Israel that if he set a king over them, that he would take the best of what he wanted from them, their sons and their daughters even, for his use. Kings had absolute power and David could have absolutely whatever he wanted. And that day and that night, he wanted Bathsheba for himself for an adulterous act. And so he took her. The powerful have temptations none of us can fully understand. Like so many rich and powerful and famous people, they are seldom denied what they want. For us, many of us, for most of us, it is a great blessing that we cannot have what we want because if we could, we would end up like, you know, Whitney Houston and we'd wind up like Michael Jackson and we'd wind up like every rock star you ever read a story about how they end up destroying and decimating their life and their family and death comes in because why? Because no one restrains them because they can have whatever they want. For many, this ends up leading to their own destruction. Mankind needs a great deal of restraining. We all do. It is the mercy of God on all us that we cannot, like David did, take whatever we want without the fear of other men. Can you imagine what you would do if you could do it? David had a lot, but as I have said time and again, what happens to us when we get a great deal of blessings from God? We want more. David took Bathsheba for his use and perhaps intended to be done with her and he sent her back home. But verse 5 tells us what happens when a man and a woman are together after this period of time in uh, her very specific period of time in life. She was fertile at the time. And verse 5 says, she conceived and she sent and she told David and she said, I am with child. This was God's doing. God was teaching David and us. In fact, the Bible says all the things that are recorded in the Scripture are recorded so that we can learn from them. They're an example to us. And the example that is here is that sin always bears fruit. Sin is not a seedless fruit. It is a fruit that bears fruit. This kind of thing does not always result in pregnancy that went on between David and Bathsheba, but the timing was just right and God had planned it to be so. Bathsheba was pregnant and this was not good news for David. Bathsheba's husband was away at war and would not be back for a very long time. And if she was pregnant when her husband returned home, he and everyone else would know that the baby was conceived in sin and not the child that belonged to she and her husband. The child could be proof needed in a death penalty case against Bathsheba, this baby was not a joyful thing. It was a terrifying thing. 
This child was evidence of adultery. Sometimes God is kind enough to show us the fruit of our own sins so that we have the opportunity to repent and forsake it. And what ends up happening in this story is a story that can live out in every one of our lives. God will not allow us who belong to Him to live in sin. In fact, John says, those who belong to God cannot live in sin. And if you think that means that He makes us righteous and we do good forever, you're missing it. God will help you not sin if killing you is what it takes to stop you. And God was putting roadblocks in the way to stop David from his sin. He loves us and He does not want us compounding sin upon sin. Horrible things come when we sin. When God's people live in sin, God's judgment comes on them. Many of us, when we're dealing with our children, I think we deal with them wrongly. We, we deal with them because we don't like what they do. And, and we're angry that they're not listening to us and they're not obeying us. And instead of looking at them and saying, the reason I don't want you to do this is because I don't want God's judgment to come on you. Because surely, as I live, God's judgment will come on you if you continue in this sin. That's what loving parents are doing with their children. They're not angry at their children. They're not looking at their children with disgust. If you do, you're foolish. Because you're just as disgusting as they are. And half of their sins come because of you anyway. The Bible says that those things done in secret will be shout out loud. God loves us enough to stop us from sinning. In this case, instead of stop at this, when David could have heard this news and realized that what he had done was so bad, David did not stop. But what David did, as we often do when we sin, is next he tries to cover his sin. That's what we do. But just like Adam and Eve learned in the Garden of Eden, man cannot cover his sins. He cannot cover them and forgive them, and he cannot hide them either from God. There was nowhere for Adam and Eve to hide in the Garden from God. Nowhere. There's nowhere to hide from God, people. No way. You can't go anywhere. You can't get under something. You, can't, you cannot escape the presence of God. He sees us. He knows what we're doing. God does not merely want us not to commit sin with our body. He wants our hearts also in our minds to belong to Him. That's why Jesus taught us in this kind of sin that the sin of adultery was committed by David as he stood on the rooftop. He did not have to even meet Bathsheba or even learn her name but he was sinning with her. We are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So beloved, do not think it is enough to appear to be righteous by others. This is not how we please God. It is hypocrisy in itself. But unfortunately, we, are, we all find ourselves fitting that label quite nicely. We make excuses for our sins. We hide them. We allow others to believe that we do not struggle with the same things that they do. That somehow we are better than they are. And we lie to them. That's why the Bible says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And we are making God a liar because God says that we are and that we do. And so if he says that we are and that we do, then what are we? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeks after God. But there is hope. Amen. Everybody say there's hope. God seeks us. He loves us. He stops us before we totally destroy our lives. God loved David knowing he would do this. And he loved him knowing he would do worse. And he told him he was going to establish his kingdom forever. And so God was going to fulfill that promise in him regardless 
of how evil David was going to, to act. Here in his love, not that we love God, but while we were sinners, he died for us. So what did David do next? David sent Joab saying, send Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come to him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. This scheming, this small talk, Andy, it's disgusting. It makes me sick. He's small talking with this man whose wife he has just taken, who's carrying his baby. And he's small talking. So what's happening? How's it going? I mean, is everything just fine? He's looking for an opportunity to cover his sin. He's looking for fig leaves. Noble David cares for this warrior that's been out battling while he's been sleeping in his bed. Using this whole situation to make himself appear good when he is lurking like Satan himself. Plotting, planning, strategizing how to cover his sin. Folks, most of us when we sin, it takes a lot of planning, a lot of plotting, a lot of strategizing, a lot of arranging. And so David does more. David says to Uriah, oh, go to your house, wash your feet, go rest, relax, spend a little time with your wife. I'm going to send you some food and, and it's going to be a great time. I care. I'm the king. Oh, I'm so glad. He's a liar. He's deceiving. His gifts are disgusting. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. You know what Uriah does here shines a light on goodness, nobility, faithfulness. So many things. We could just talk about him. But we're not talking about Uriah today. We're talking about this stinking, rotten, smelly, wretched, depraved man, David. Now what's funny, when we say David, we never we don't snarl. I don't under, I don't even understand this. We should. Or maybe we shouldn't. Kind of go back and forth with it, right? Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with the servants of the Lord. He went not to his own. And when they told David this, Uriah did not go to his house. David said, Uriah, what's wrong with you, man? You need to go home. You need to spend some time with your wife. You need to relax. You need to, you need to eat and stay in your house and take your leisure. And Uriah's nobility shines. Oh, the ark of God. Right? Remember we learned last week, David's all excited, joyful, dancing before the ark. Don't you think this twinged David straight to his heart? This was another roadblock. God was going, did you hear the man? The ark of God is down there in this city. The people of God are out there. They're sleeping in an open field. I will not do this thing. He's feeling the zeal that David danced for last week that we were talking about. The ark of God he starts off with. Oh, the ark of God abides in tents and my Lord Joab servants of my Lord are encamped in the field. Shall I go to my house, eat and drink? And shall I lie with my wife? He throws this in here. I'm telling you, God is using the words of Joab to just body shot, body shot, body shot David into caving, confessing, 
forsaking, and all the while David's taking it like a champ. The ark of God, the nobility of this man, and David's still going, how can I solve my problem? How can I cover my sin? I'm telling you what we're reading is horrifyingly disgusting. But the thing is, it's all so true about a lot of us. Thank God for this valiant warrior, this faithful servant of the king. The goodness of God grants to Uriah here should have inspired David, and yet it sends him deeper into his sin. And oftentimes, that's what it does. People are kind. People are loving. God is extending his hand. God is trying to help them. God is, and they are just pushing him away. David's getting more desperate. His plan is failing. David said, Terry, here, stay. Why don't you stay for a while? And he gets in and he comes to his house. And the, and, and the, the important king is now drinking and talking so much so that he gets Uriah drunk. I mean, the king, oh, one more. Drink one more with me. Just drink one more with me. Oh, who knows? They probably sang songs and talked about battles. And, and, and he's probably told him how great he was. And they're there. And all the while, David's going, is he drunk enough yet? Is he drunk enough yet? Is he drunk enough yet? He's causing the sin of drunkenness even on Uriah. Here Uriah had said he wasn't going to go. That he valued the ark and Joab and the people. And he would never do this thing. And David's going, I'm going to get him to do something he said he wasn't going to do. I'm going to tear his nobility down so that I can have my way. Folks, this is wretched. Darker, darker. David goes, more desperate he gets. And God frustrates his plans. And so David could have seen his hand here too, but instead he presses harder and harder to cover his sin. And what David does next is so cowardly. David arranges Uriah's death. Not outright murder. He doesn't take uh, a knife like Ehud does and jab it into the heart of Uriah. No. Worse. He gets someone else to murder him. And he has him killed by the hands of the enemies of God. How deplorable! What a coward. It came to pass in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab. He now takes his man. He's included these people that were messengers. He's included the people that found out who she was. He included the people that brought her to his house. He included all of them. And now he's including more people in his sin. This is what we do when we sin. That's why God tells us when we come to take communion that we need to examine ourselves. The Bible says that our sin is a pollution to those around us. It is. That it spreads like a disease in our midst. David wrote the letter to Joab sent by Uriah. He sends the letter by the hand of Uriah. I mean, can you hear this, Andy? He gives the letter that says, kill the man in the hands of the man he's going to kill because he trusts him so much. He's so noble and he's so good. He won't even open up the letter to look at it. David knows he's that good of a man and he gives it to him to walk with his instructions to die in them. Guys, I'm telling you, the level of depravity here is so horrible. And so we know what happens. Joab does what he says. Joab puts him out there. He lets the enemies of God. Joab has to include, what do you think, that, what do you think the warriors that fought with Uriah were thinking? Joab's like, all right, 
you know what you got to do here. You're going to get up there and then you're going to back off. All of these men, they're having to obey the orders of those that are above them. And they know what is going on. They're all involved. They all now are carrying the guilt of the sin of murder themselves. The men who fought with Joab, Joab, David, they're all murderers. I mean, it went from lust to what? Compound, multiple blame, conspiracy, murder, lies, deception, trying to break vows, drunkenness. It's what sin does. Sin leads to what? More? More sin. Lust, abuse of power, involving others in a sin, adultery, deception, lie, murder, spreading like a cancer in every direction. So we know what happens. We know that finally David gets what he wants. Verse 26 says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, he sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That could be the understated sentence in the entire Bible. The thing that David had done. It was one thing. It was all one thing. Isn't it amazing? Here he is, not where he should be. He looks. And in that moment, he's done all of these things. Why? What does the Bible say? Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. But when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth is there a better picture of this anywhere in the Bible? David may have thought he was righting one of his wrongs by marrying Bathsheba, or he may have been happy to really get what he wanted all along. We really don't know. But what we do know is that God saw it all and that God was not pleased with David. You ready for the catch? But God still loved David. Folks, at this point, I don't really know what to say because I don't love him. I hate him. I despise him in this story. If I'm putting myself in the story, Andy, I'm thinking, this guy is never going to be my friend. I will never trust him. He's disgusting. He deserved to be punished. He should die for his sins. That's where I'm at. Anybody ever do that to anybody I know like that? Involve a bunch of other people, abuse their power, lie and deceive and be such a disgusting hypocrite. I'm telling you right now, Luke, it'd be hard for me to love him. But the catch is, as I just said, God still loves him. If that doesn't give you hope today, I don't know what will. Andy read this for us today. It's such an amazing thing. And he says, and because God loves us, we, therefore, should do what? He says we all love each other. See, since God loves sinners, we should love sinners. Are you starting to follow this? You see, because if you look around, you're not going to find anybody that bad here. And God loved David. And he's telling us that he loved him. And so there's nobody here that's going to be that hard to love. 
But we don't. We don't love ourselves when we sin, and we don't love others when they sin. We don't do it. And that's where we're wrong. We hold it against them. We want to make them pay. And we shut them out of our lives. God didn't do that. It baffles my mind. At this point of the story, I'm completely done with David, but God's not done. God's never going to be done with David. This is such an amazing thing. Do you know God's never going to be done with you, Steve? He's never going to be done with me. And at, at your darkest hour, Luke, when you've done it all wrong, when everything's a mess, when you've screwed everything up, if that day ever comes, Luke, I'm going to look right at you and go, oh, but you know, God loves you as much as he did when you didn't do all that stuff. And you're going to be going, oh, no, it's not true. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to go, and I hope we never have that talk. But there's a lot of people I've had that talk with. But I haven't understood it to this depth, honestly. When we dive deeper beneath the dark waters of our sin, God goes down there with us. He goes and he brings us up. He loves us. His mercies are new every morning. He is faithful to us when we forsake his law, his wisdom, his ways. He never leaves us. Though. He never forsakes us. So that's what God does for David. He rescues him. Now the rescue is pretty horrible. And sometimes when we dive deep, deep in the dark depths of sin, what needs to happen to bring us out of the angry waves is wretched. David thought he was going to have pleasure in his sin, and he did for a season. But what God was going to do would be extreme, but it would be just what David would need to be pulled from the depths of his sins. He sent a man to David. It's a very simple statement. God sent Nathan the prophet. That's what God does. God doesn't normally speak out of clouds and from mountains to most people. Most of the time, Andy, you know what he does? He just sends a guy. How do you think Nathan was feeling about this job? You're going to go tell a guy who, at his word, he can have you killed at any moment, that you know enough about him to have him put to death and expose him and for the evil, heinous, nasty person he is, and you're going to let him know I know all about that. Wouldn't that be a great assignment? We don't get any of this details in the story, but he says, and God sent him, and he went. I mean, wow, there's a whole story right there. Can you imagine this conversation with God? I mean, the one God I would know was rough, but the one they had with Nathan the prophet, I can't even imagine. You want me to do what? God speaks to us from the still small voices of his servants, and God sent a man who no doubt knew the danger of the work that he was going to do, but he feared the king with a big K more than he feared the king with a little K. That's what men of God do. That's what they are. We don't have time to savor the story like I wish, but let's see what God does. So, 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and he said, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. You see, Nathan does not confront David directly and tell him to repent, but through the wisdom of God and a good parable, God has David deal with David. Total genius. 
God's going to have David be David's judge. And ultimately, honestly, that's really the only person that can judge you beside God is you. In fact, the Bible says if you judge yourself, you will not be judged of God. Sometimes that's all we really need, though, is we need a story to put a mirror on our lives. We always know who the good guys are and the bad guys are in the stories, and we always know what ought to happen to them. And here he sees a story and he goes, that no good, dirty, rotten, filthy, right? That's what David is so mad. When he hears this story about the rich man and the poor man, because, I mean, David, he doesn't like this at all. There were two men in one city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had an exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew together with him and his children, and they ate, they did eat of his own meat, and they drank of his own cup, and they lay in his bosom. This, this lamb was like a daughter. They were never going to eat this lamb. This lamb was a pet. This was their pet. They loved it. This guy's got so many sheep, he doesn't even know where they are, doesn't care. And instead of going to get one of the many he has, the traveler came to the rich man and, and instead of taking any of his own flock and herd to dress for the wayfaring man, he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. David at this point is like, what on earth? I mean, David's mad. David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. Who was David's anger kindled against? <laughs> against David. So David swears an oath. He pronounces death upon this man. He's pronouncing death upon himself. And fourfold restoration. This is what this sinner deserves, he thinks. It was clear to David that in the moment, as it was to you when you heard the story, that David should be in serious trouble for what he had done. And David now sees himself. The next four words of this story should be written on our hearts from this day forward. And I pray that reminding us of who we are and what we are when the sins of others make us angry. Nathan says to David, Thou art the man. Next time you get... Mad at your kids, Andy, when they go awry and they go off and you're, you're mad. You're, I can't believe it. I homeschooled them. I told them they got half the Bible memorized. Uh, I did all this for them and told them God's word and brought them to church. And, and, and I got a 15-passenger van and I did all this stuff. And, and blah, who do they think they are? And the devil tries to get you back. Go, you any better than that? You're the man. How many years did you walk not following me? How much did you give thanks for what I blessed you with? Thou art the man. And this, I really believe, is what we need to understand when dealing with other people. And sometimes the other people we deal with is ourselves. Some of us cannot abide that we're sinful. It makes us crazy. It doesn't bother God so much. Then, says the Lord, then saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee your master's house, your master's wives into your bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. I'm telling you right now in this part of the story, David 
is reeling and God is going to tell him something that's going to make his pain worse. But it's going to teach him something he'll never learn any better way. God is saying, you know what? I would have given you more. You see, we want to go out and take it. We want to have what we want to have. And God says, I've got more for you. We think that what we have isn't enough. And so we're always looking for some other thing. And God says, if you want more, just ask me. I'll give it to you. We think too little of God's love for us. Because we think God thinks about us the way we think about other people. This is why God's wanting us. He's wanting God. He's wanting us to love other people. Why? Because he's loving you. When he gives us so much to be thankful for, he doesn't look at us and say, I've given them enough. Any more would just be too much good, too nice. God says, if I, what I give you isn't enough, I'll give you more. God's good. David didn't understand the love of God before this like he would from this day forward. That's what God does with our sin. He doesn't use it to hurt us. He doesn't use it to make us pay, to manipulate us. He uses our sin to show us what we cannot seem to understand. He said he loves us. God loved David knowing who he was. And he used his own depravity to show him how much he loved him. Isn't that amazing? How can God take something so horrible and show us his love in it? David would reap so much evil from these things that he had done. For many years to come, but God would not leave him. He held his hand as he suffered, and he used his life to teach countless of us about God's love, not just for us, but for all of his children. You see, it's so very difficult for us to see others as they are. We can't see them as the sinners that they are and still love them, but that's what God does for us. We allow bitterness to grow in our hearts toward them. We cut them out of our lives. We hold their sins over them and want to make them pay. If by the help of the Holy Spirit we could learn from God today, we could find out that every time a brother or sister sins against us, we can use that sin as an opportunity to show them our love. We will reap all that we sow from the sins that we commit and we will need one another when those fruits come to harvest. If you read about the judgments of God, they seem so horrible, but, but Stephen, they're, they're there because that's what David needed to repent. He needed this. He says, because you've done this, the sword will never depart out of your house. There's going to be killing in your own home among your own children. He said, I'm going to raise up evil of you from your house. People are going to take your wives and give them unto your neighbors, and they will lie with them in the sight of the sun. And this happens to David. And because you did it secretly, I will do it in public. Folks, this is hard, hard, hard punishment. And David could have become bitter over it. But God did for him and to him this to save him from his sin. It sounds horrible, but it's what he needed. God loves us enough to do the hard things that we could not do. That's what love is. 
So after his judgment is pronounced, and you know, God, David knows that when God says it's true, he knows it's going to happen. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord also hath put away your sin. God had forgiven him, but the seeds he had sown in sin were going to come to harvest still. He said, the child that is born unto you shall surely die. Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. And I love this part. David knew he was guilty. He knew God said it was going to die, but he still asked God not to take it. He prayed and he fasted. He said, who knows if maybe God might be more merciful. This is, he knew God, right? Why did, why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? He said, God, God's going to forgive him. He's not going to burn Nineveh to the ground like he ought to. I don't want to go. They're going to repent. And here David's like, I know God. God might just forgive me and let my child live, but he doesn't. And when David's is told in verse 19 that the baby is dead. It says in verse 20, David arose from the earth. He washed and anointed himself and he changed his apparel and he came in the house of the Lord and he worshiped. And they asked him why he did it. He said, who can know if God will be gracious to me? But I know I've been going for a while, but I, I have a little bit more for you. I just want to give you. The amazing mercy of God is seen in the fact that we know who the next king of Israel is going to be, Tim. Who's it going to be? It's going to be Solomon. And whose mama is Solomon? What is that? Do you know David had 19 sons? But the very next son born to this woman he was in adultery with, who murder had happened through, that from that woman, from that union, he brings Solomon. What is God doing? Why does he do that? There were 19, there were 19 sons. Can you think of a better one? He goes, this is the one. Why? Because I want you to understand that I know that you're sinners. And I know that's what you're going to be. And I love you anyway. And I'm going to forgive you. And I'm never going to leave you. And I'm never going to forsake you. I'm not depressed at how nasty and how bad you are. Watch what I do with you. It's a story of God's love. For those of you, how many like the Proverbs 31 woman? You guys like the, that description of the Proverbs 31 woman? Anybody? This is what's amazing, Ashley. I, I didn't quite understand this. Do you know the commentators tell us that in... Uh, Proverbs 31, I can read it for you. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Anybody know who King Lemuel was? King Solomon. That was his pen name. King Lemuel. That's what the commentators all say. He's writing about himself. It's his mama that gives us the definition of a Proverbs 31 woman. Bathsheba? Seriously? I'm telling you, the more I tell you about this, you're going to go, this, this, this doesn't seem right. So she gets to be the mother of the next king? 
So she gets to be the woman who tells us what a Proverbs 31 woman's supposed to be like? And oh, that's not all. You ready for some more? You're going to like this. So you know, God gives her son after son after son. And her, her, the first son dies. She's not unable to name it. The second son is named Solomon by David. And then Nathan the prophet takes part. It's a two-part name, Solomon. Part by David and part by Nathan. Nathan the prophet becomes a friend to the household of David. But then Bathsheba is allowed to name her next son. And she names him. <laughs> she names him Nathan. What in the world? She names him Nathan. Why? She's saying, I think everybody knows who we are. It's God that's great, not us. And it was Nathan the prophet that came and brought news of my sin and my son, the sin of my husband before everybody and everybody knows about it, but I'm going to name my son Nathan. She picks out Nathan the prophet, Andy, as a tutor for Solomon. And if you like to read genealogies, you're going to find out that Jesus comes from David and Bathsheba and Nathan all the way to Mary, through Nathan all the way to Joseph. Both sides. What is God saying to his people of God? He loves us. He knows what we are before we're going to be it. It's why he takes Rahab the harlot from the walls of Jericho and puts her right in the line of Jesus because that is where we know that Jesse comes from. From their family. You see, this is hard for us, but it's not hard for God. Maybe after today, it'll be a little easier for us to deal with each other's sin. Amen? I'm going to close by reading Psalm 51 one more time. I may make a comment or two, but I'll try to close it soon. The humility, of da the humility of David and the sincerity of his repentance is shown by the description of the psalm that is put in the holy word of God. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. He'd started to understand. It wasn't, have mercy upon me, God, because I'm going to be good. Have mercy upon me because of your loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He realized he could not hide anything, that only God could cleanse him. And so he says, God, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. You know, we like to forget about our sins. God forgets about our sins. He doesn't hold them against us, but I really think we should remember them. Because David remembering this sin kept him in a right relationship. Do you know, this is the only fault against David listed. It says, he did right in the eyes of the Lord, except what he did with Uriah the Hittite. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He realized that his sin was against God because God had loved him. And what had he done with the love of God but said it wasn't enough? 
and then he realized who he was. He said, I was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He began to see that he was a sinner. He said, you desire truth in the inward parts. And he goes, honestly, you see what I am. I've been a liar. But Lord, in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He knows where the washing and the cleaning and the perfecting all come from. They don't come from himself. They come from God. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. He could have been bitter against God for the horrible things that happened in his family. For the death of the baby. For the death of his son Absalom. For the division of the sword in his home. He could have blamed God because God brought that to him. But instead he said, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And I'm telling you, more faithful are the wounds of God to his people. Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out mine iniquities. He's saying, he's not saying I don't have them. He's saying, please don't look at them, God. Create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. What a contrast we see from Saul. Don't take my kingdom. Honor me before the people. Don't let everybody know that God's rejected me. David never asked for his kingdom. He never asked for, to, for anything. He just said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. What did he want? Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with a free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors their ways and sinners shall be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. He understood the righteousness of God was not something he could attain, but something he should appreciate. Open my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Lord, I understand you're not wanting more dead bullocks. You're not wanting more dead lambs. I would give you those. I'd kill every lamb and every bullock there is that I could find in the whole, if that's what you wanted. But now I understand what God wants. God wants my heart. And he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou will not despise. David knew what it was to be crushed by God because of his sin. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. He knew that yes, there was a law and there was requirements and we're going to do those. But I understand that what God really wants from me is he wants my heart. Today, will you give God your heart? Will you do so in loving your brothers and sisters that are sinners? And loving yourself in the same way because you are beloved of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness, O oh Lord. Lord, I know that we have such a hard time with this. I know we have such a difficult time seeing people as sinners. It upsets us. It makes it so difficult for us to have relationship with them when they sin against us and sin against others. But Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves, Lord, in need of your grace and that we would see that you have forgiven us. That we would heed the admonition of the apostle who said, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said... Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.